Hello, and welcome to the podcast, Pride and Prejudice, a place for Jane Austen lovers to finally have their say, to fully explain their love for one of the greatest authors in the English language, and finally, to give a big middle finger to all the pretentious jerks in their lives who look down on them for being Austen fans. My name is Kristen. I'm a librarian who discovered Austen in my early teens when I saw the 1995 BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice, starring Jennifer E. Lee and Colin Firth. Um, I'm joined today by my dear friend Maggie, who will now introduce herself. Hi, Kristen. Thanks so much for having me on the show. <laughs> my pleasure. No, it's my pleasure. <laughs> um, the title of this podcast, of course, is a reference to Jane Austen's most famous novel, Pride and Prejudice, which was published in 1813. I find that many people who put Austen down have never read a word of her work, but take great pride in being prejudiced. <laughs> See what I did there? Facepalm against her work because they think it's just romance and bonnets. Do you have the same impression or when people... I find that when I tell people that I'm reading Austen or especially watching a movie adaption of Austen, that you you get the eye roll, not necessarily someone going off on a, uh, you know, railing against you. But there's definitely a certain amount of, oh, God, you're such a girl reaction. And that's always, it's always, you're such a girl, too. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that's because of the patriarchy? It's definitely the patriarchy. <laughs> and I will flip this table over if you give the me the opportunity, ladies and gentlemen. No, but that's a real problem. Honestly, I feel like it's been a huge problem in my life. Obviously, I'm related to men and friends with men and have lost face repeatedly by saying that I'm an Austin fan. And they get this attitude and they think they, they act superior to you. They think less of you because they think you're admitting to liking, you know, a trashy romance. And also they think that's like some kind of woman womanly weakness. I think a lot of this goes back to what you were saying, though, about... Um, how it is considered just romance novels. People who have not read Austen, uh, they think that she gets filed under the romance category rather than under literature and even one of the greatest English writers of all time. And I think maybe, I don't know how much of that is a, is a remnant of when she was published. She was one of the few female writers at the time and how much has kind of carried through to our current day. But... I think that people who are not familiar with her work and maybe are only familiar with her movies and some of the hysteria that has yeah, resulted the brand. from the movies and the brand, she is only seen as a romance novelist, which is certainly not the case. Right. there, She has been a commercial success in modern day when she's been adapted because the focus is always on playing up that element. But there is so much. I mean, there's so much there. There's so many useful ideas. There's so many interesting thoughts and there are so many like characters that really just stay with you and I think teach you a little bit about you know people I mean and that was the case for me like as you know like Austin it it's even more hurtful to me when people put down Austin and think they're being funny to my face um, like it's you know just hilarious that I've ad- admitted to the world that I like Austin because it's almost like admitting nowadays that you're a huge Twilight fan yeah. or a huge Fifty Shades of Grey fan, and, and it's completely not even on the same level. Well, like you said once, like I never put anyone's fandom down. Like that's copyright, Maggie. Like you said that don't put anyone else's fandom down. I don't want to put Twilight or um, the Fifty Shades down. However, I do want to make the point that. This woman is being studied. People are making careers out of studying this woman's work. I mean, she's she is not the latest flash in the pan 
And if this is the case, like the academic world has this fascination with Jane Austen, why would you assume, knowing that, why would you assume, knowing that it's in every college English course, you know, why would you assume that there's nothing in there for you to learn about and nothing in there for you to know? I, I agree. And I think that Jane Austen's position in the, say, the literature pantheon, if you will, is not fully understood or appreciated by people who aren't necessarily in that academic world or haven't studied her in that way. If you're just kind of a, you know, excuse the term, lay person going about your life, you may not understand how important she was to English literature. Um, if your only experience with her is through the movies or through seeing someone reading just a book on the metro, like, oh, Jane Austen, okay, yeah. whatever. Seeing the bonnets. But- I think a lot of men see the bonnets. And they, they, you know, it's like there's this show, Better Off Ted. There's this character, Portia de Rossi, who's the boss. We should point out that the show Better Off Ted aired for about half a season <laughs> and is not currently on the air. But you should look it up if you can find it because it was very funny and very clever. Thank you. No, thank you for saying that because I know this is totally random, but I always think this particular thought. So there's a character played by Portia de Rossi. She's the boss. And at one point she puts her hair up on her head in a severe bun. And she tells everybody, you know, stop what they're doing and they drop everything. And then she says to Ted... When the hair is up, that's all they hear. And in the case of Jane Austen, when the bonnets are on, that's all they hear. They think it's forbidden love in bonnets. They think that there's going to be a cliff and the rain and passionate kisses, notebook style. I mean, that's what people think that Austen is. And it's so frustrating. It's so Not that there's anything wrong with that if you're into that. (laughs) But so here's, here's sort of the... I didn't want to just get on the podcast and only bitch in general terms. About, Although we do enjoy doing that, let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, and one more big middle finger to anybody who's ever said that kind of thing to me. But um, I wanted to make the point, I want to get it on here and actually tell a story so maybe people can understand a little bit more. So, Maggie, you have known me since sort of like I was in college, right? So you can give me feedback on this when I say this. But I actually had what I am going to armchair diagnose as social anxiety when I was growing up, including like the teenage years on into the college years. And it was a really big problem in my life. But when I tell people about this, that, you know, this was going on and I was having a really hard time, they always say like, no, you weren't. You were fine. No, everything was fine. And I, I always think, like, why, why would I lie about this? And, you know, then I tell them things, and they're like, oh, yeah, you were so weird. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I certainly didn't have the impression that you were weird. But perhaps you gravitated towards people who are kind of like me and that very extroverted and don't really require a lot of feedback to just talk forever. Um, but I do remember one time we hung out, you and I went to get dinner one night and afterwards you said, you know, thank you so much for asking me out to dinner. It was so fun. Um, I thought it was really sweet. I really appreciated it. And I was just kind of thinking, okay, I didn't think I was doing you a huge (laughs) favor, but that definitely made an impression on me. And you admitted to me at that point that you were shy and you did have trouble talking to people sometimes. So then I felt very privileged <laughs> to have been able to spend time with you but as I, in one-on-one. Well, that's, um, you know, I, I don't remember that instance, but, I mean, it was, it was shy. There's shy, and then there's being physically terrified, and your heart is racing, and you're trying to be in a social situation. I remember being out with you and Selvi and, and other people this at... This is a friend of ours from college, a oh, mutual friend. Yeah, apologize, I shouldn't just drop her name. And we were at, like, Paul's Deli or something, 
and I was thinking to myself, I'm really enjoying this. I cannot wait to get this over with. I cannot <laughs> wait to go home. I'm really enjoying myself. I can't wait to be out of here. And then I would go home. Then I would be home and I would feel lonely. And I would think, oh, gosh, you know, like I'm just so lonely. And then when I would be out with people, I would just be terrified of people and terrified of the situation and finding conversation. And finding making conversation spontaneously was something that I did not do. And it really affected my relationships. Like in high school, you sort of have friends just because you have them. You know, and I was lucky enough to sort of just get caught up in this social circle where everybody just had me tag along. But even in high school, it was really hard. And people years later have made comments to me about how weird I was, you know. And like, for example, a new girl moved to um, our town and I had always been the new girl. Like every two years I had moved. So I invited Were her. Were you in a military family? Yeah, my dad was Navy. And this new girl came to town. It was the beginning of the school year. We were going on a band trip. She was in band. And I said, oh, you know, you can sit next to me, you know, on the bus. And I felt like this, like, oh, I'm helping somebody who's new, you know, like this feeling. But it was only years later that she, I I became aware that she had said to all our, later, all our mutual friends, like, she never said anything to me. (laughs) Like, why did she ask me to sit next to her? She wasn't going to say anything. What a creeper. (laughs) And in college, I mean, like, we became friends, like, my junior year of college. Before that time, I only had, like, a couple of very dedicated friends who were, like, willing to put up with this bullshit. And one of them, I mean, bullcrap. And (laughs) one of them was um, Brendan. And so just to illustrate, like, the depth of my awkwardness and not understanding how to communicate with, with people was that, you know, he would invite me to dinner. Half the time I wouldn't show up, first of all. And, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then, um, I, then I would run into him on campus, and I would be so stressed out by by this bomb being dropped on me that now I had to talk to somebody. That I would say, I would get, like randomly say things in response to his questions until I felt like I had spent enough time, and then I would just walk away, like. Mic drop. Boom. <laughs> like, we're done here. I'm, like, I'm assuming this conversation is over. The appropriate thing is just to walk away. <laughs> and it was only years later, again, that we were... Uh, no, it wasn't years later. It was sort of at the same time that this actually brought my attention to this. But we were somewhere, and we were having dinner or something, and he goes, You know, Kristen, when you do that, <laughs> that really hurts my feelings. <laughs> You were just like, okay, we're done here. But you wouldn't even say that, right? You would just turn around and walk walk away. He'd be rummaging his book bag for something and look up and Kristen's gone. (laughs) Is Kristen Batman? What just happened? (laughs) Oh, and I was Batman. No, I, um, but, um, but yeah. So that having been established, I probably watched this movie I've seen it about 50 times in my life. We're talking about the 1995. Yes. Yes. Thank you. The 1995 uh, BBC and A&E. That's right. Don't forget A&E. I always do because it's just such a mouthful. (laughs) Um, Version of Pride and Prejudice. I saw it as a teen... First, I had had it taped off of the TV. My mom made it. As my mother and I did as well. Yeah. And, And then when we finally got the six... Um, cassette tape. Yes, we had that as well. Yes, because it's a six hour long, it's five and a half hours long, and so when we got it on VHS, it was six tapes. 
and you memorize, you know, when the tapes start and when the next one, anyway. Um, and then, you know, you get the DVDs and so on. But I'd been just, like, watching it religiously. There was a period in my life where I just watched it every weekend. Like, that's what was on my agenda. Um, It was the original binge-watching before (laughs) Netflix. People would just watch Pride and Prejudice all weekend. It was... You could definitely binge it, because you just get so into it. But it wasn't because I was in love with Colin Firth. It wasn't because I just had to see their love story over and over again. It was because this movie was trying to tell me something. There are were many ideas in this movie that I was trying to absorb and understand that were about this problem that I had. And it's a very educational movie for the socially awkward. <laughs> Austin is so skilled at showing us people who are bad at being social for whatever reason. And so I assume you're referring to uh, Darcy as a sort of model of social anxiety, and so he gets this reputation of being overly proud. Yes, yes. And through as you watch the movie, you know, and on the face of it, you know, the, the book is called Pride and Prejudice. I mean, he is proud. But what you come to figure out through watching the movie is that his pride is a rationalization. Well, I'm just better than other people. That's why I can't socialize. That's why I don't feel at home with them. That's why I, I, I don't have conversations like normal people do. And because he's so wealthy, he gets away with that. And, and nobody challenges him on it. Nobody calls him on it. And it's the story of him being challenged sort of for the first time by Elizabeth, this amazing woman who then he becomes really, really into. Elizabeth Bennett, as you know, I mean, how would you describe her? The ultimate socializer, right? She is. She is charming, I think, is kind of one of... Witty is probably the number one word you hear to describe Lizzie. She always has... But she always has a comeback. She always has a little remark to make, to make people laugh. But it's never mean-spirited, or it's never purposefully mean-spirited. There are certainly times when she speaks out of anger, when she knows how to wound people. But she's never mean-spirited. She, I think, enjoys the foibles of the people around her. She, she does. She is intelligent, just as Darcy is. She sees people's failings and, sh- and shortcomings, just as Darcy does. And She basically doesn't let you get away with anything. Yeah, or with, with some people, you know, even if people are annoying, she will suffer them. You know, like, she will not be obviously insulting or rude to them, whereas Darcy would be. He would just be like, well, I'm better than you. Again, Elizabeth has a set of values, and one of those values is you need to make people feel comfortable in social situations. That's a baseline requirement of your life. And so a lot of people have tried to, like, for example, diagnose Darcy with autism. I thought that it might be interesting if I just played some clips to show his sort of evolution as he goes along and why I'm sort of putting forth this you feel about sure clips I think that'd be fun before we start playing the clip I just want to say that obviously we are mostly we're talking about the movie because that was Kristen and myself's first exposure to Austin and we can't play clips of a book I mean we could play clips of an audiobook but that's not that interesting and let's face it everybody loves the movie <laughs> so we are playing the clips and but we are going to do our best to discuss the text, I think, is kind of the point here. But I would say that it's a very close adaptation of the text. It's very close, and to be honest, there are things in the movie that are not in the book that I always read into. 
This is sort of like Austin by way of Andrew Davies, who mm-hmm. wrote the script, and by way of Colin Firth, who interpreted it for us, because I think that Colin Firth, I mean, it becomes so obvious that he's playing it as somebody who's emotion, like emotionally constipated and so- <laughs> socially constipated. So the first clip, what's happening, this is at the very beginning of the book. Elizabeth and her mother and her sisters are all at this dance. And these rich people come in. They've just moved to the neighborhood. And Darcy is one of them. And the other people, Darcy's friend Bingley um, specifically, is going around and dancing with everyone and having a great time. He is not held back from having a good time by the fact that he's richer than everybody else. Darcy, however, stands apart. He does nothing. He says nothing to no one. He just stands around looking snooty and being unfun. And so his friend says this to him. Come, Darcy. I must have you dance. I must. Hates you standing about in this stupid manner. Come. You'd much better dance. I certainly shall not. An assembly such as this it would be insupportable. Your sisters are engaged at present. I know perfectly well it would be a punishment to me to stand up with any other woman in the room. And of course, all you can do is just roll your eyes like, oh, God, what a jerk. Well, yeah, and here here I am, like, feeling empathy for this guy because even though he, he does say, he's like, oh, the pores, you know, like, I refuse. He, he says something that resonates. He says that you know very well that it would be a punishment for me to stand up with any other woman in the room. Like, it was a punishment for me to have to meet new people brutally awful for me to have to try to have conversation with new people but there's also another layer for Darcy specifically in that he is always the richest guy in the room and every woman sees an opportunity to ensnare him a rich husband for herself because that's their jobs that's their only purpose as a woman and because it is a truth universally (laughs) acknowledged Kristen thank you for bringing it up (laughs) no 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 go on with this this oh no I want to hear you say it no it it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man with a good fortune in possession of a good fortune is always in want of a wife but that's a that's a famous first line and it's funny because Austin is laughing at her society and everybody she knows she's pointing out the fact that everybody's obsessed with marrying money because you can't earn money to stay in that social class. You have to inherit it mm-hmm. or marry it. The landed gentry, right? You, yes, the landed gentry. Or you can be a, a naval officer and like have spoils of war or whatever. I destroyed a French frigate and all <laughs> I got was this t-shirt. No, you got a lot of freaking money. You didn't just get it. If you're familiar with the plot of Persuasion, <laughs> this joke will be infinitely more funny. Yeah, so that's what's going on. He is, he is being assailed on all sides with attention and with insincerity. I think that's a really also- interesting point. I actually never even thought about that. And you see that a lot kind of in movies that feature, I mean, movies now and stories where, say, there's some kind of celebrity where they don't open up. They say, you know, I don't open up to people. I never know if someone is friends with me or if they are just friends with me because they want something from me. And I actually never came at Darcy's character from that point of view before. And it's taken me 50 watches to formulate what's going okay, so on. So let's here. let's state it out so people know. Your thesis is that Darcy actually suffers from crippling social anxiety. Yes. Okay. At least some social anxiety. And he's rationalized. But layered on top of that is a certain amount of 
feeling that he is in fact better than people. Yes. Okay. Because it's it's a it's a rationalization. And so we're going to talk about the next clip which is at um a party at Sir William's house. Now Sir William is like the social ringleader. He is trying to have, everybody has to have fun. Capital. 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 And he's at this party and all of a sudden Elizabeth's younger sisters who are total man chasers want to dance. So they have their sister Mary start playing the piano. And Darcy, she's playing a concerto, right? And then she stops to play a jig. And Darcy is like, oh, that was my jam. <laughs> <laughs> he makes this face. And he's like, but, but he's like, but I oh. think a lot of, she's probably like, oh, God, dancing. Oh, my God. Yeah, no. Um, and so, but he has, at the previous party, insulted Elizabeth, didn't realize she could hear him, and said he wouldn't dance with her. And... Now, um, at this party at Sir William's, he spent the whole night creepily staring at her, and he's realized that she's something special. I wonder if someone out there has written a paper about Darcy as the 19th century Edward Cullen. Like, creeper, always watching her. That's why, you know, Stephanie Meyer loves to think of herself as, like, Austin Mm -hmm. 2.0, and and she loves to draw that parallel, because he is a creep. He is such a creeper. (laughs) And he, you know, and there's this line. He is in Darcy. Yeah. There's, um, and, and Edward Cullen is also a creeper. But there's this line that Elizabeth says at Sir William's party when he's just staring at her. She's like, I wish he would not come into society. Mm-hmm. He only makes people uneasy. Yes. And that's what I was doing as a, as a teen, like walking around, being a big nothing. <laughs> walking around, being creepy. Black hole of conversation. <laughs> but anyway, he insulted Elizabeth. She is of interest because instead of being crushed as any other woman would have been, she laughed about it. And so now he's watching her, and now he realizes she's something special. So now he wants to right that wrong. He wants to dance with her and give her back that favor. He thinks she deserves it. If there's one thing that Mr. Darcy is not used to, it's people laughing at him. That's right. No, that's a real thing. And um, we we will get to that. But here's what he says. Here's what happens at the party. He tries to dance with her, and she rejects him. You go, girl. Yeah. And, um, oh, uh, one more thing I was going to say about this before I started. Oh, I apologize for the baked in 19th century racism coming up here. It's mild, so just just disregard it. A charming amusement for young people, this is, Mr. Darcy. Nothing like dancing, you know. One of the refinements of every polished society. And every unpolished society. Every savage can dance. Oh, yeah. He's quite. I think I should speak to my sister before she exposes us all to ridicule. Capital, capital. How about Miss Eliza? Why are you not dancing? Mr. Darcy, allow me to present this young lady to you as a very desirable partner. You cannot refuse to dance, I'm sure, when so much beauty is before you. Indeed, sir, I've not the least intention of dancing. Please don't suppose that I moved this way in order to beg for a partner. I would be very happy if you would do me the honour of dancing with me, Miss Bennet. Thank you. But excuse me, I am not inclined to dance. Come, come, why not? When you see Mr. Darcy has no objection, although he dislikes the amusement so much in general. Mr. Darcy is all politeness. He is, he is. And why should he not be considering the inducement? For who could object to such a partner, eh, Darcy? Beg you would excuse me. Well, well. So, I want to make a point here. 
he is looking at these people dancing, which he, he, you know, he thinks he's better than this. He says, any savage can dance. Immediately, when presented with the opportunity, he tries to dance with Elizabeth. He can't. He has already lost her interest because of his terrible social skills. It just illustrates the way, the way that he's trying to rationalize why he's on the edge of everything. That's what I think is going along. This scene always struck me for two reasons. First, that the first time we see Darcy and he refuses to dance, is that an actual dance? Is that a ball? I mean, not a, a super formal ball. It's at a the kind of neighborhood gathering place where they would have dances probably every week. It was kind of the chance for everyone to get together and socialize. But it's still a structured event. And to dance there would be a punishment. And yet where this scene takes place, it's at some dude's house. It's like they roll up a carpet and there's <laughs> yeah. six people dancing. Yeah. And the fact that he even deems to dance at this establishment versus an actual dance hall, I thought was very surprising and almost shocking that it's like a bunch of 15-year-olds dancing and then it would be Darcy and Elizabeth. Yeah. And that, to me, was a clear indication that he was really interested in her. The other thing that struck me about this... Um, is how hilarious the look is on Sir William's face when Darcy says the any savage can dance <laughs> comment. And Sir William is just like, I don't know what to do. How do I respond? That was really awkward. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, quite. You know. um, yes. It always struck me as funny, too, how he says, it would make me very happy if you would dance. It's like mm-hmm. the opposite of happy in his tone. It is yeah. so formal. He he does not emote at all. He just sort of says the words. Well, here's the thing, though. If you were reading, oh, God, I can't remember what it was called. It was something like The Rules. What was that book that came out about how to get your man? Mm. And it had all of these rules you had to follow. This was probably 10 years ago. I can't really remember what the book was called. But playing hard to get was kind of one of the main things. So when he does ask Lizzie and she turns him down, you can see that she's even more, <laughs> yeah. way more interesting. Her stock goes way Who up. turns me down? Exactly. I'm good. I decide to dance and this bitch is going to dance with me. <laughs> and it's just like, she played it perfectly without meaning to. Yeah. But she definitely played the hard to get. And so I think if you're reading the the book, that's also something that she does that gets his interest. He's not used to women turning him down for anything. Exactly. So, the next clip. Okay, so there's some some additional stuff that happens. So, what happens is, Elizabeth's sister, Jane, is sort of in love with Mr. Bingley, Darcy's friend. She goes to his house to have dinner with his sister's. She gets wet along the way. And, of course, in Austin... She gets rained on. If get, if you get wet in Austin, you are going to get sick. And she gets sick. And she um, she is very sick. And so she stays at their house in her sick bed, in the Bingley's house. And Elizabeth comes to stay with her and be her nurse. I'm just going to interrupt you for a second because there's this great part where... She, they, they get the news, the family get, the Bennett family gets the news that Jane is sick. And the father makes some comment about, well, if she dies, I hope that you'll, to the, to the mother, who is the silliest woman ever. The father says a comment, something like, if she dies, I hope you will be gratified that it was in service of trying to get a rich husband. And the mother goes, don't be ridiculous. People do not die of trifling colds. And I remember watching that and thinking, it's the 
1800s, of course people die of cold. Shane could just, like, get pneumonia and be dead tomorrow. What is wrong with you? Of course it wasn't that drastic. No. Well, you can see it in her face. She's so defensive after yeah. he says that because, because of that very Of course people die of cold. <laughs> so it's a real concern. Um, but but Elizabeth goes to Nurse Jane, and that throws her into Darcy's social circle. Now it's Darcy at home. He's with people he feels to be his intellectual equals, and he's also comfortable with them. So he lets his hair down a little bit. Uh, yeah, and um, he's becoming more and more interested in Elizabeth. Elizabeth is becoming less and less interested in him. She's realized that he won't play along. He won't be social. She feels, I think, that he has broken a social contract. She doesn't have to treat him with any kind of consideration because he's just gone across the line and he's just a jerk and she's going to treat him with that amount of disdain. So, for example, he's playing billiards. Remember the scene where Mm -hmm. she's trying to find the the dining parlor or whatever and she goes into this room where he's playing billiards and he's there. And instead of saying, oh, hi, like she would with anybody else because she's a social... (laughs) Oh, hi. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She just looks at him, turns around, and leaves. It's like the sickest burn. And so... (laughs) But he's still into her. And so they have this um, sort of a weird exchange. There is a lot of verbal fencing that happens when Lizzie is at... Netherfield. Yeah. Um, and I really like it because it's kind of shows how Darcy is starting to open up. But to her, she just sees him being kind of like a jerk. Uh, but I love when the two of them banter because he is a, he is ju- he is just as clever as she is. He just doesn't use it a lot when he's not in his comfort zone. Right. Um, so the fact that he does engage with her at all, I think is kind of what you were saying, where yeah. he does feel slightly more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. In the, in this, in this setting. And so, but he's still inappropriate as you will hear. Oh, yes. Miss Eliza Bennett, let me persuade you to follow my example and take a turn about the room. It's so refreshing. <laughs> Join us, Mr. Darcy. That would defeat the object. What do you mean, sir? What on earth can he mean? I think we would do better not to inquire. May we insist on knowing your meaning, sir? Why, that your figures appear to best advantage when walking and that I might best admire them from my present position. (laughs) Shocking! Abominable reply! How shall we punish him, Miss Eliza? (laughs) Nothing so easy. Tease him. Laugh at him. Laugh at Mr. Darcy. Impossible. He is a man without fault. Is he indeed? A man without fault. That is not possible for anyone. But it has been my study to avoid those weaknesses which expose a strong understanding to ridicule. Such as a vanity, perhaps, and pride. Yes, vanity is a weakness indeed. But pride, where there is a real superiority of mind, pride will always be under good regulation. I have faults enough, Miss Bennet, but I hope they are not of understanding. My temper I cannot vouch for. It might be called resentful. <laughs> <laughs> 
My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. That is a failing indeed. But I cannot laugh at it. I believe every disposition has a tendency to some particular evil. Your defect is a propensity to hate everyone. Well, yours is willfully to misunderstand them. Uh, shall we have some music? Hmm? Oh, God, they're so great. <laughs> <laughs> That's the famous, don't you want to walk around the room with me sort of uh, intro that everybody laughs at, like this is what they do for fun. They take yeah. a turn about the room. Well, you can only play cards for so long. So there are a couple of things here. And um, there's a lot to unpack here, and I'll just point out a couple of things. So the first thing, it's exactly as you said, Maggie, he doesn't want to be laughed at. And the same is true of, of me and has always been true of me. I'm already so socially awkward that when people tease me and laugh at me, even though I, I, can, I can understand that they're t- trying to be friends, like, I can understand a lot better now than I used to it still puts me in a really unsure footing because I never know whether people really like me or want to be around me. And when you, when people tease me, it makes me think, well, do they really mean that? Like, do they really, how do they really feel? Hashtag kidding, not kidding. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. Is that a joking on the square kind of thing? And people have done that to me. And so, you know, now that I know that that's, you know, sometimes people really expressing their, real opinions inside every joke there's a kernel of truth and he wants to be above all of that i don't know you know obviously he's a fictional character i don't know what's uh really true about him but i always saw that as him being withdrawn again because he's uncertain in rationalizing it so what i really like about that exchange in particular is that he's basically trying to flirt with her when they're walking around the room, that would defeat the purpose. I can see your figure yeah. from best advantage from here. <laughs> yeah. You know, eyebrow waggle. Yeah. Um, he's trying to engage her. He's actually trying to flirt with her. And she's just kind of like, no. It's uh, Miss, Miss Bingley, who is very flirty and responds, you know, shocking, abominable reply. <laughs> and kind of makes the conversation go further. And Lizzie just gets pissed I think is the best way to say it when I mean if you tell someone that they have a propensity to hate everyone that's kind of harsh she's not kidding not kidding she's just not kidding exactly um but he is still I think trying to respond in kind and he responds very truthfully so I think at this point to him he is like basically waving a red flag that says I like you but she just still thinks he's being a jerk yeah um and she's just like not interested in playing along Right. With his banter, which he's really trying hard right. to do. And he's, he has no idea how much he's failing. And at this point, he sees her and him on the same intellectual plane. He sees them as equals, and mm-hmm. she sees him as, like, totally not even in her ballpark. Um, it's in, it's, I just find it interesting listening to these clips. I'm getting so much more out of it in terms of its placement within the story as a whole when you don't have the distraction of their attractive faces. Yeah. <laughs> if that makes any sense. If you're just listening to what they're saying, you actually listen to what they're saying rather than just seeing them respond to each other. Um, and so I kind of, as we're playing them and I'm listening to them, I'm kind of thinking of all these new thoughts and your comments are definitely making me think of things that I hadn't considered before. But even just listening to the clips, I kind of pick up a lot more. Every time you see this movie, you, read, you notice something else. But yeah, no, their 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 relationship continues to fall apart, and um, then what happens is that Elizabeth meets someone she does like, 
he is also a social masterpiece. He is amazing at socializing. He, when they start talking, she realizes right away. He says something like, "Oh, it's going to be a wet night," and he, but he, she thinks. Even the most threadbare topic can be rendered interesting by someone who's good at having a conversation. Yeah, you know who else was a really good conversationalist? Ted Bundy. <laughs> but I'm just saying, and that's exactly <laughs> that's exactly the the point. Man, she thinks the manners make the man. She thinks this guy is so considerate of the people he's conversing with. He makes them feel good. He keeps an interesting conversation going. I mean. Being good at interacting with people is, is a huge value in Austin's world, in her worldview. Um, I don't think this is the clip that you're going to play, but I know that one of the things in the movie that's made clear is when he catches Lizzie's attention is when Lydia just invites him along to a party that they're oh, right. going to. Yeah. And she's like, oh, you should come. Everyone will be there. And he goes, I would love to join you if the hostess would be kind enough to extend the invitation. And Lizzie, there's, they, they do a, a cut to her where she looks up and takes notice and thinks that was actually really polite. I'm intrigued by him she's now. She's impressed. She's intrigued. Hey, a guy who has actual good manners. He's not going to just show up at uh, this person's house uninvited. Right. Which, is that rude? Because I actually do that all the time. Is that <laughs> considered rude still? Well, we're not in Regency England. Just, so. Right. So when I just show up, <laughs> and I'm like, hey, Kristen. <laughs> You're always welcome in my home. Oh, well, thank you. But, but, but yeah, so right after she meets him, though, he divulges to her that, oh, too bad, you know, um, Darcy has ruined me financially. I knew Darcy when I was growing up. He's ruined me. And that means that Elizabeth can't marry this guy, this guy Wickham. He's not even in her um, realm of who she can marry because she has no money either. We should point out that Wickham, for those who aren't familiar, um, Lizzie is from a, I would say, middle class kind of family. Like, they have an estate, but they have five, her father has five daughters, the estate has been what's called entailed away, which means that it has been left in the will to the next male relative, which is kind of a distant cousin. So none of the daughters or the mother will inherit anything um, because, again, patriarchy. Um, and then Wickham is an officer in the militia. who is He gets an income, but it's not that much. He's in the same social class, but he certainly they certainly can't... Pr- continue to maintain that lifestyle together. Yeah, she would not... If they married, she would have very little money, and then they would just be living off whatever he made. Right. It never comes to that. She never has to make that choice, but she knows that he won't ask her because he's got to ask a woman with money to maintain his lifestyle of gentility. And there are other reasons why he needs to marry a woman with money that we won't get into yet. No, it's, yeah, we won't get into... Because I'm sure people listening to this haven't seen Pride and Prejudice, right? Right. right. We should maintain the illusion <laughs> that anybody is actually going to listen to this. No, I meant the illusion that people don't know the story, Kristen. Yeah. People are going to listen to this. Do you think people are going to listen to this? Okay. I don't know. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I better get to the content then. So, there, um, in the next clip, Darcy is even more interested in her. She is even less interested than in him, and he finally gets her to dance with him.
some conversation, Mr. Darcy. A very little will suffice. You should say something about the dance, perhaps. I might remark on the number of couples. You talk by rule, then, when you're dancing? <laughs> yes, sometimes it is best. Then we may enjoy the advantage of saying as little as possible. Do you consult your own feelings in this case, or seek to gratify mine? Both, I imagine. Each of an unsocial, taciturn disposition. I'm willing to speak unless we expect to say something that will amaze the whole room. This is no very striking resemblance of your own character, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, what's happening here? They go to a dance, and finally, Darcy gets her to dance with him. This is the big ball. This is at Netherfield. The ball, yes. And um, he is so interested in her that he's dancing with her. It's this huge compliment, or so he thinks. And I just want to play this because it's it's actually, it's really funny. They start dancing, and this clip has, like, a long time of no dialogue because I'm starting it right when they start dancing because I want to illustrate how long he waits before he says anything, right? Anything. And she actually just starts talking to him like he's never going to say anything to her. It's the, the verbal equivalent of waving her hand in front of his face, Right. I think this is interesting that we're actually doing this together because you relate to Darcy because <laughs> you have had that same kind of social anxiety. And I relate very much to Lizzie as someone who is extroverted, who tries to always make people laugh. Um, so I just imagine I will often I don't like the uncomfortable silence. Yeah. No. So I will start talking. So if I say I was dancing with someone in Regency England, um, as one does, and they were not talking to me, I would be like, fine. I'll just say something. Yeah. No, that is something that I relate. Someone's got to talk. It might as well be. Well, now I do. Now I do that because now that I've progressed to a level where I realize I have to talk that like I didn't know when I was on my way to like Meadowlands or whatever um, for the band trip. Now that I realize that conversation has to be made. Now my, the source of my anxiety is God, I got to say something. And so with see with me the way i'm approaching it is i am darcy but i want to be elizabeth mm -hmm. i think in the end he wants to be her he embraces her values you know he they talk about that in this clip as well about how or perhaps it's later when he mentions about how she is she easily she's able to easily speak to people and i think that's something that he really admires about her oh, i love that line when she says neither one of us I can't remember. She just said it. I can't remember what it is. Basically, whenever they speak, they are expected to astonish the whole room. And for him, it's because he doesn't speak that often. So when he does, everyone shuts up. Oh, my God, Darcy's talking. <laughs> when she talks, it's, oh, Lizzie's talking. It'll be sparkling and witty and clever. We must all pay attention. And I just love that line. Uh, sometimes I feel that pressure to entertain. If you get the... If you get the a reputation of a class clown. There is also a certain amount of pressure that accompanies that, where people expect you to always be funny and always be clever, and that can be exhausting. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I, I just love that line where just in their to in their different ways they are very similar, in that when they speak, people listen for different reasons. But there's a, there's pressure on both of them. Yeah, 
to perform, to perform. before strangers. Yes, exactly. Which we'll get to later. Yes, and no, I, I think that's going to be the very next next clip. But I, um, when I was just listening to this just now, oh, what was I going to say? Oh, you know, so we were talking about how she believes that he has broken a social contract. Now she can talk to him about. I know we don't want to talk to each other. That's explicitly what she says. Mm -hmm. She's like, we can talk by rule. You can say something about the dance. I could say something about the couples. And we can say nothing. We can be together and say nothing. And she knows how to do this. She's the master of empty conversation because that's, you know, something that she can do. And he does not. And when he says, do you you seek to gratify, you know, do you consult your own feelings or seek to gratify mine? He's curious. He's... He doesn't understand. Does she think that I don't want to talk to her or she doesn't want to talk to me? He doesn't really understand her, her gist. It seems to be that also one of the things that I have, I also, when I was younger, this will probably be very shocking to you, had a certain amount of social anxiety when I was in elementary school. I would actually make myself physically ill whenever my mother would take me out to say to a restaurant in public. Um, and that's something I got over clearly. (laughs) Um, but for me, a lot of it was the constant overthinking when someone says something to you. And I think Darcy does, he says this by his comment to her, everything, everything someone says to you has to be interpreted and you have to fixate on it. And did they mean this? Did they mean that? Are they, or like you were saying, when someone's laughing at you, were they serious? Were they not serious? And that's part of what makes the anxiety Mm -hmm. is the constant overthinking. Absolutely. Of everything that is said to you. Yeah. Yeah, and so I think he, I don't know if he, he, he's just a kernel, he has a kernel of curiosity there. And by the way, here's a bonus clip when we're talking about manners that he doesn't have. This is him, she says to him something about Mr. Wickham. Oh, you've, you know, like makes a barb at Darcy about Wickham. And he says this. Mr. Wickham has the happy manners that enable him to make friends. Whether he's equally capable of keeping them is less certain. He's almost disdainful of the fact that Wickham can can make friends, but there's like a hint of jealousy there too, mm-hmm. isn't there? Um, okay, so we have to now let's let's round this out. Let's end this uh, podcast. It, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it at length. But the uh, the piano scene, right? So this scene, if I've seen this movie fifty times, I've seen the piano scene a hundred times because this is like you you were referring to, this is the kernel of truth that like supports my entire hypothesis. And also it's about his epiphany or lack thereof, really. Well, he's going to specifically tell her, yeah, I'm not good at this. Yeah, yeah. And so where they are now, they are no longer in Lizzie's hometown. They're visiting, um, Darcy is visiting his aunt. Elizabeth is visiting her friend. They both sort of live on the same estate, although they're in very separate social fields. Um, but they do all get together. And Elizabeth plays the piano. In the book, they talk about it a lot more, how she plays the piano, but she doesn't really like performing. She doesn't put herself forward to perform because she just doesn't practice that much. She's, she knows she's mediocre. Lizzie performs more with words rather than with music. Right. Yeah, so she can do it. So she's just entertaining them because she happens to be the only person there who can play the piano and the, this back and forth that they have it's so gorgeous because she is playing the piano and sometimes the the little riffs that she plays they like sound like a question or they, they just complement the scene so well but what they're gonna they're gonna have a conversation where Darcy at this point he's so in love he's about to propose right 
And he, he knows it. We don't. You know, Elizabeth doesn't. She has no idea that's how bad he is at telegraphing his She feelings. thinks that he still does not like her at all. Yeah. And um, what he's going to say in this conversation is, you and I are the same. You know, and what she's actually saying in this conversation is, you need to try. You, you know, you think you don't have to try, but you do. Um, and it's just such a great... Oh, wait, we have to say one more thing. We have to say one more thing before the clip starts. And that is there's a third party in this conversation, Colonel Fitzwilliam, who is just there basically to um, be a foil. He's Darcy's cousin, so he knows Darcy, basically. Okay. So now we'll play the clip. I'm so mad. And do you mean to frighten me, Mr. Darcy, by coming in all this state to hear me? But I won't be alarmed. My courage always rises with every attempt to intimidate me. I know you find great enjoyment in professing opinions which are not your own. Your cousin would teach you not to believe a word I say, Colonel Fitzwilliam. That is ungenerous of him, is it not? It is indeed, Darcy. In politic, too, for it provokes me to retaliate and say somewhat of his behaviour in Hertfordshire which may shock his relations. I am not afraid of you. What have you to accuse him of? I should dearly like to know how he behaves among strangers. First time I ever saw Mr Darcy was at a ball where he danced only four dances, <laughs> though gentlemen were scarce and more than one lady was in want of a partner. I'm sorry to pain you, but so it was. I can well believe it. I fear I am ill-qualified to recommend myself to strangers. Shall we ask him why? Why a man of sense and education who has lived in the world should be ill-qualified to recommend himself to strangers? I'm... I have not that talent which some possess of conversing easily with strangers. I do not play this instrument so well as I should wish to. But I have always supposed that to be my own fault because I would not take the trouble of practicing. That line, oh my God, oh my God. He's coming out and he's admitting it. It's, it's not just pride. It's because he thinks he can't. I've never been able to. I just can't. But that was like me. Like, I thought that I just could not. Right. And then see this, I watched this movie 50 times and tried to parse this scene. And what was hard for me is that I am not a man of sense and education who has lived in the world. I was still... You're, you're not a man <laughs> of sense and education? Not when, I, not when I was watching this movie. I'm only, I'm only now, halfway there. Now, Debatable She's that like, I'm halfway there. Um, but, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it is a man thing, you know, like, actually, like, you know, patriarchy and all that. It's harder to be a woman. You do sort of have to be quieter and not speak up, but... Anyway, um, he says, I just can't. And she says, look, nobody is born knowing how to have a conversation. This is something that is an acquired skill that takes practice, just like my piano playing. Right. And then he says this. You're perfectly right. You've employed your time much better. No one admitted to the privilege of hearing you could think anything wanting. We, neither of us, perform to strangers. He's missed the point, all right? And he still says, you and me, you know, I don't perform to strangers. I'm just like you. You don't like playing piano for, for strangers. You save that part of yourself for a more intimate situation. 
And so he still believes in his value system. And he has not yet come over to hers where he he just has not yet accepted that he does have to try. Now, I want to ask your opinion of something because my mother and I have actually had a long-standing disagreement about that last part where he says anyone who's had the privilege of listening to you could think no one could think anything wanting you've employed your time much better she thinks that that's an insult that he's insulting her i think that he's not insulting her so what is your interpretation of that line i never realized that she thought it was an insult well she thought that he was saying that she was a crappy piano player (laughs) like oh you're right like don't spend your time trying to play the piano better it's not going to happen um, yeah. I think that was kind of her interpretation of it. Um, my interpretation was that he was trying to pay her a compliment, but he says the privilege of listening to you. Yeah. Oh, he's definitely um, trying to pay her. Compliment. I think he's trying to say like you play beautifully already. Yeah. The fact that you are also a sparkling conversationalist shows that you have employed your time well with that. Yeah. Um, that was always my interpretation. But I remember my mom. We watched this once, um, and she was kind of like, "Ooh!" After that, like, "What are you? What are you ooing? There's no burn there. He was being nice." Yeah. She's like, "No, he was mean." I don't think. I, I agree with you. I don't think the line directly after that supports that interpretation at all. Yeah, it's a very cryptic sort of. Passage. It is. It's, it's got a lot of layers. I just. I don't know. I just. I like you. I love that scene. I think her the playing her playing the piano adds a lot to it. Um, But again, I mean, she is kind of flirty in the beginning, but she's flirting with Colonel Fitzwilliam. She's not flirting with him. And then when he kind of opens up and speaks truthfully like he did at Netherfield, she is not flirting in her response. She's saying, like, well, you know, you have to practice. You can't just sit down and play a piano. You can't just go out and start talking to people and be amazing at it. And she still doesn't. So when he does propose to her... It comes out, she doesn't get it. He, I think, is in his mind, he's made his interest in her very clear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He yeah. thinks she's waiting for it. In fact, she has a headache, right? And stays back from dinner the next time. And, and uh, he thinks, oh, this is my, she stayed back on purpose. She's alone. I can go get her. And because <laughs> I have it, because I have it, let's just play, I'm just going to play you the first few lines of his proposal to her. In vain, I have struggled. It will not do. My feelings will not be repressed. You must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. In declaring myself thus, I am fully aware that I will be going expressly against the wishes of my family, my friends, and I hardly need add my own better judgment. Yeah, so these are. this is just the first two lines of the proposal, and that's really the quotable romantic line, I admire and love you. He should just stop there. Well, when people give us so much shit, Margaret, for loving this romantic mood, what's the next line? I'm going against my family, my friends, and my own better judgment. That is not a romantic proposal at Mm -hmm. all. I mean, this stuff gets taken out of context, and he... This is a huge crash and burn, and... um, This is the opposite of a romantic proposal. I I mean, yes, he's saying he loves her, but... He's talking about the finances. Yeah, when you follow it up with like, by the way, I hate your family, I hate the fact that you're poor, and if I, I've, I'm against my will in loving you. That's not romantic. Yeah, not nobody at all. wants to be told that not at all. And this is how this, I'll display this: how she, they argue about a bunch of stuff. And even though he's done a lot of crap, she thinks he's done a lot of other crappy stuff. When she rejects him, she explicitly mentions his manners as the reason mm-hmm. why. 
And this is your opinion of me. My faults by this calculation are heavy indeed. But perhaps these offences might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by the honest confession of the scruples which had long prevented my forming any serious design on you. Had I concealed my struggles and flattered you. But disguise of every sort is my abhorrence. Nor am I ashamed of the feelings I related. They were natural and just. Could you expect me to rejoice in the inferiority of your connections? To congratulate myself on the hope of relations whose condition in life is so decidedly below my own? You're mistaken, Mr. Darcy. The mode of your declaration merely spared me any concern I might have felt in refusing you had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner. You could not have made me the offer of your hand in any possible way that would have tempted me to accept it. From the very beginning, your manners impressed me with the fullest belief of your arrogance, your conceit, and your selfish disdain for the feelings of others. I had not known you a month before I felt you were the last man in the world whom I could ever marry. You have said quite enough, madam. I perfectly comprehend your feelings. And now I have only to be ashamed of what my own have been. Please forgive me for having taken up your time and accept my best wishes for your health and happiness. So she explicitly says, your manners. From the very beginning, your manners. And this is going to haunt him. Yeah. That, is a, that is a hard scene to watch because they both basically know exactly what to say. For people who have not really spent that much time together... I think they actually do know each other very well. They both know exactly what to say to the other person to wound them in the most awful way. For Lizzie, it's always been her family's embarrassing. Not embarrassing like they don't have money, because like I said, they're not destitute. They're not poor. But they act in an embarrassing manner, um, especially her sister Lydia and her mother. And for Darcy, for his, who has always, part of his taking pride is that he is above everyone else. And that he does conduct himself always with the utmost decorum. And so for her to call him out as ungentlemanly and to attack his manners, you see him flinch. It's amazing. Colin Firth does this scene where he flinches when she says this to him. And they both know exactly how to attack each other. Which, of course, we all know families are really good at knowing what button to push. And despite the fact they've only known each other a few months, they know exactly what to say to one another to hurt. Right. So I know because of time, we should probably... Do you want to do like a end the podcast here and then do like a part two? Sure. I think that the public is crying out for a part two. <laughs> Obviously. We can't leave it here Obviously. with our two lovers separated by this awful, awful proposal where he basically was like, your family's embarrassing and you're too poor and I really wish I didn't love you, which is awful, right? I mean, we can just all agree that it's just... Yeah. Not a nice way to no, ask someone to marry you. Not at all. Um, but we have to we have to get to the happy part. I know. Oh God, am I now playing into the whole thing about like why people don't think Austin's stupid because I get all excited about the happy no, ending? Because this is a serious real human story about actual human problems that don't just have to do with kissing in the rain. Like this there is something here. And and by the way, like, you know, a lot of men, they say, oh, it's so girly. And they say, oh, it's a romance. It's so girly. Like, don't f- lie to me. I know you have romantic feelings in your life. Like, I know yeah. you. Yeah. Also, if I can 
it's not just men who I think women we feel yes. embarrassed. Yes, we, about the fact that we like Austin. Down. That's yeah. also Oh, yeah. you like Austin? Oh, it's not and I mean I'm sure that sometimes you hesitate to tell people about this side of always. you because you feel a certain amount of embarrassment. And it's about always it. that way. People always see the opportunity for a f- joke. It's not a joke. I'm not a joke. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> I'm now holding Kristen's hand for those at home who are listening and cannot hear it. It's hurtful. It's hurtful. I mean, there's so much interesting stuff going on and so much stuff that was pertained to my life that, uh, you know, and um, people don't, people just don't understand. So at least I got to make this podcast. So the next time somebody makes a shitty joke, I can email them a link. Listen to this. <laughs> You'll know how awful you are. Pride and Prejudice. The whole novel takes place within a probably, like, what, 50-mile radius? But that doesn't mean that the themes are not universally truthful. Exactly. About how people relate to one and another. it took place a long time ago in a social scenario that we no longer have. And it's still very relevant because it's about people. Just like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, people laugh at it because of the name of it. It was one of the most influential shows of the 90s. Like, it was such a dynamic, amazing show that people love. And to this day, people there are people who won't give it a chance because of the name of it. It is some writer on Slate, I meant to look up her name and I totally forgot to, said this, she was writing about Austin and she was talking about how people put Austin down and about how it's just women looking for husbands. And she says... It is an unsubtle reader who conflates a plot synopsis with the value of the art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I, that's, that's exactly what I believe. Yeah. And just because it's 200, 202 years ago. Wow. That Pride and Prejudice was published. Doesn't mean that these are not relations, still universal relationships that we have. And I mean, how much time or do we spend thinking about, who we are going to marry even now 200 years later as men and women i mean we are taught that that is you know you have to find that perfect someone and whether you believe in that or not the and the thing with the families and how people react together um the economic stat the way people relate to one another based on their economic status these are all things that are still part of our culture and our society as coming from a um a british tradition if you're looking at it that way um and so i think like you were saying people who want to shit all over austin have not read austin or they read or watched with the idea that they wouldn't like it and they only saw what they expected to see which was bonnets and then they went away patting themselves on the back and feeling smarter than ever and more superior than everybody else than ever and um you know they didn't they didn't try you know Yeah, those people suck. Yeah, they do. Yeah, I don't like them. (laughs) Well, they're missing out. Yeah. Okay, so if you are an Austin fan and you have someone in your life who says things like that to you when they're in the car or someplace where they can't escape, (laughs) make them listen to this podcast. (laughs) And I think that will change their minds. Yeah, clearly. At least this part one will change their mind and we have an amazing part two coming up in the future as well, so. Well, thank you, Kristen. I had a really great time. Thank you so much for letting me join you. Yeah, thanks for coming. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And, uh, you know, talk to you soon. Capital. (laughs) Capital. That's right. All audio clips used in this podcast were taken from the 1995 BBC and A&E miniseries adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, starring Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy, Jennifer Ely as Elizabeth Bennett, 
Crispin Bonham Carter as Mr. Bingley, Christopher Benjamin as Sir William Lucas, Anna Chancellor as Miss Bingley, Anthony Caff as Colonel Fitzwilliam. Uh, the miniseries was directed by Simon Langton and produced by Sue Bertwistle, with a script by Andrew Davies and with music by Carl Davis. These clips have been used, we believe, in good faith under the provisions of both U.S. and U.K. copyright laws that allow for the reproduction of copyrighted material for the purpose of critical analysis. If you would like to contact the makers of this podcast, you can email us at firstimpressionspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.